This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 110 of the Ink to Foam podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I am Luke. And I'm James. And this week, with the help of special guest Daryl Gregory, we discuss Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' 1987 graphic novel, Watchmen. So we're thrilled to have on today's episode the acclaimed author of novels and comics alike, Daryl Gregory. Hello, Daryl. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. So longtime listeners of the show may remember that last year I announced I was going to the Viable Paradise Writers Workshop. Um, I think it was around the time we were covering The Shining, James. I might be misremembering that, but um, I went to that workshop, had a great time, learned a lot. One of my instructors there was Daryl Gregory, and that's how I met you. And I, I also remember some uh, bourbon being drunk. Uh, there's <laughs> vague memories. Yeah, and I'm about to head out there for this year's Viable Paradise Friday. So then you're about to be replaced, Luke, by a whole new set of people. <laughs> I will no longer be the most recent <laughs> students. Sadness. Sadness. <laughs> but so you came out to an event here in Portland uh, a month ago, something like that. Um, you were one of three authors who did a reading, Ted Chang and I think Jack Skellingstead. Jack Skillingstead. Skillingstead, yeah. Yep. And uh, you guys all gave readings, presentation by Ted, and I talked to you afterwards about the podcast, and we didn't know what project to do, and it was, but you were interested in coming on. Um, but then watch, I reached out to you about Watchmen, and you said you followed those comics when they originally came out. So I just want to ask you about that, and what was your experience like with these comics back then in the 80s? Would you like to ask me about being old? Is that what this is getting at? <laughs> yeah, I was in college when they were coming out monthly, and it was, you know... Uh, there was something about it. We knew even then there was something special happening. I mean, we were all the comic book geeks were talking about this stuff um, and reading it month to month. You know, there's something amazing. Every Like I just reread it again in graphic novel format, but there was something amazing about reading it month to month and having to wait and not knowing everything yeah. we know now about the plot, every, knowing everything. Uh, if you've seen the movie, and now there's a TV show coming out. Um, we didn't know any of this. So it was an honest mystery um, and there was such a huge depth of um, mystery about it and mystery and history that's built into the book. So the book became larger because we had this month between issues to talk about it. Um, so in my mm -hmm. head, uh, Watchmen is this year long cultural thing that happened <laughs> my junior year of college. And instead, um, now it's like, yo, you, somebody could sit down and read this in an afternoon. But it's just, uh, mm -hmm. and, it, and uh, I think I mentioned to you uh, when we were talking about Watchmen, the book also had an outside influence on me, both as a comic book writer and uh, as a prose writer. And we could talk about that as we go through it. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear about that, honestly. Yeah, I know it was like, an, it's, it's like once it was completed, I know it was like instant classic. Everyone realized that. But I just wanted to know, like, um, so it came out one month and then like people started, it started rumbling or was it like an instant overnight success? Like, do you, do you kind of remember how you, how it, you came to start reading it? Um, I don't know how I knew. I mean, I was, I was tapped into a group of friends and I think DC had been doing a push. Um, and it just, the covers looked like nothing else. 
Um, you know, they were more graphic design than illustrative, you know? And so it was just everything about it. Somehow, I think DC recognized they had something great and the word somehow got out. I don't know how. It may have been even by, uh, I, I was going to school at Illinois State University and it may have been even the comic book guys there knowing what was up too and, and sort of pushing it on us. But in my memory, um, we were all into it pretty early because I remember waiting month for month to figure out, you know, who killed the comedian. <laughs> yeah. So I know that this was a this was an interesting time for comics with like sort of restrictions being put on certain comics. And like around this time, some of them were being removed and and it, uh, comics were kind of trying to find their voice. And maybe some some audiences out there didn't necessarily read comics and saw them more as uh, a medium for kids. I wanted to know. Like, did you see the influence right away of, the, of of Watchmen? Was it a culmination of multiple things that kind of moved comics into this this direction? Or do you think Watchmen really was like the, the herald or like the shepherd of that? No, I mean, it's hard to... Um, there seemed to be something in the air. I mean, um, and I don't have... You know, I, I didn't look up the dates for this kind of stuff. But you've got Frank Miller working on Daredevil. Um, and then I think Dark Knight Returns... Uh, I'm not sure what year that came out. I think it was right before Watchmen. Uh, some geek out there will correct me. Um, <laughs> and uh, But there definitely seemed to be something in the air where um, there were really good comics being written and sort of uh, rethinking the way comics worked. And later on, you're going to get to uh, Kingdom Come by Mark Wade and um, Alex Ross. Um, and mm -hmm. you've got Frank Miller doing Dark Knight and uh, the Daredevil run, um, it just seemed like something. It was in it was in the air, and so I uh, I'm reading all this in my in my twenties, and uh, we didn't really know that in the future all everybody in my generation was going to become movie producers, and we would get this golden age of seeing this stuff filmed. Um, but it definitely seemed like we were already past. Uh, you know, uh, the kids age, we'd already had the classic X-Men stories were coming, had been coming out. Um, it just seemed like a great time to be reading comics and there was great stuff happening, uh, on a, on a weekly basis. And I was luckily that my college roommate, my sophomore year, uh, had way too much money and was a comic book geek. And so I just read everything he brought into the dorm room. That's awesome. It was a lovely time to be broke. <laughs> So I want to follow up on that, uh, the influence of this on you and your work, um, specifically your you write comics and then also your novels. And, and has it influenced both or is it more in one area or the other? Uh, it, it was definitely influenced my prose more because that's where I started. I started with short stories mm. and then gradually started writing novels. Um, uh, and then only later on was I able to express my jealousy to my friends who were writing comics. And, and and they gave my name uh, to Boom Studios where I started um, and I got to start writing comics. Uh, my first comic was with um, co-written with Kurt Busiek, uh, who's an amazing guy and was really kind to me. And that got me started. But I, I'm really an I feel like an amateur comic book writer. I've never gotten to the point where I've written enough comics where I feel like I'm at play. I'm that I could be jazzy, that I could be trying new things. I was just trying to write competent comics that worked, you know, that just did the basics <laughs> and were were clear and where the dialogue worked and not write too much, which is, which is the classic era of prose writers. When prose writers move to comics, the, their scripts are way too long. There's way too much dialogue. 
so learning how to mm-hmm. pare down was was the main thing. But Watchmen, um, I mean, what really got me about Watchmen, I only realized as I went on how much it influenced me, um, was the tremendous amount of depth and care on every page and in every panel um, that rewards not only multiple readings, um, but is the pages are talking to each other across the months in a novelistic form. The, the book works as a novel in that it does the same thing a novelist gets to do. Like one of the cheating things that a novelist gets to do is we can write the entire novel. And then when we get done with that first draft, we're like, okay, um, I've got the bones of a story here. Is how do I make all these things start talking to each other and resonating? So you get, you get repeating images you get to find out that, that some themes are stronger than others. So you get to lace that theme all the way through the novel. You get to use repeated phrases that sort of make things feel more epic, uh, have sort of a mythic significance. So they start to, the words start to seem more than just the plain words are because of repetition and the way they're used in different contexts. And you see that all through Watchmen. There's just repeated phrases yeah. over and over again. And then they keep showing up in different characters' mouths or on billboards or in graffiti in the background. And it begins, the whole world begins to swell with meaning. Uh, and that that effect is really addictive. I mean, somebody says Watchmen is like the English major's dream of a comic book because there's so much in there and <laughs> everything is elusive, uh, A-L-L-usive, uh, and maybe elusive too. Uh, and uh, everything seems to start to resonate. And so by the end of, end of the comic, um, every time somebody says something or you see the silhouette of the lovers keeps showing up and over and over again, it seems to mean more and more. Uh, it's just great. Yeah. Or the smiley face with the blood blood smear on it, of course. Yeah. And it ends on that image, too. The kid's T-shirt, yeah. he drips ketchup on it, and we're right back where the full circle. It's, it's, it's uh, and that's a thing that, like, for instance, uh, people who write about writing. So John Gardner wrote a book called On Becoming a Novelist, and he talks about the ending should ring chimes that echo across the entire novel. So that same effect of when you get to the end of a novel, a few key phrases or an image reoccurs that remind you of the beginning of the novel. And suddenly mm. everything seems to tighten together. It all seems to take shape yeah. in front of you. It's uh, it's tremendous. Gives me chills just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Watchmen, uh, it feels so much more to me like a literary work, right? It's There's something about it. Like it, you could almost say that it was written as a novel and then turned into, or at least I feel this way, and then used the, the visual medium. And it is, it is so, it's almost cinematic looking for, for a majority of it. It's like these, these shots are so well framed. It creates both a literary and like a cinematic, like almost like film-like meaning in your mind. So like it's this perfect merging of those two sort of mediums, like the visual and the and the written well, word. Right. And, and that pairing of Dave Gibbons, um, you know, what he does with color and uh, lighting in this thing. Um, but also in his notes, it was, you know, given to was like, I want to use this strict uh, structure. And I wish I had the original scripts to see how much Alan Moore was coming up with and how much would Dave Gibbons come up, what the, what the collaboration looked like. But that kind of strict panel, six, six panel structure per page. Um, nine, I believe, right? Oh, wait, nine. Yeah, three and three. Um, right. Three, three and three. And every once in a while he breaks it. And then by the time you get to the apocalyptic ending where the panels are getting, where you get those for the first time in the entire series, 
you get these full uh splash, splash pages, pages. Uh, yeah it, it just it just um it it's stunning and it slows everything down you're just seeing the carnage it's it's uh it's it's masterful but you're right those those so when i write comics um i'm not an artist at all it's always a great thing when you're when you can collaborate well with uh with the artist so for instance when you write a comic script what i concentrate on um is to point out Look, here's the piece of information that needs to be clear, and then you can figure out everything else. Like, for instance, if someone is about to uh, surprise somebody with a knife, I'll say, look, we have to see them holding the knife behind their back at the, in this panel. Mm -hmm. So that when the knife comes out, the storytelling is clear where the knife came from. And so that's all I give. And then I let the artist figure out what is the most dramatic angle, what, what should – you know, what's the lighting should look like. Like I try to just say, here's what to focus on and let the artist do their work because mm -hmm. so much of the emotional weight comes from the art. Oh, but I want to talk about this idea of it. You know, is it a novel? Is it a movie? You know, Alan Moore's main point, the reason why he doesn't like to sign on his name to any adaptation, uh, you know, he's on record saying this is deliberately done as a comic and it does things that only a comic can do. Mm -hmm. Um, and not only is it in dialogue with all comics, so the comic book reader is going to have a different, you know, emotional read on it than uh, than somebody who's just coming into comics. Although I think it works perfectly fine for people who've never read comics, but someone who's been steeped in the history of comics, it resonates more than maybe it would for someone else. In that way, I think Alan Moore was trying to, he's trying to do something different with comics at that time period because... Um, he was trying to show like how you can break the mold kind of. And in so doing that, I think brought out this whole generation of, of what we were just talking about. I, I wanted to go back to what you were talking about with like the colors and the lighting and everything that's used in, in this and on the splash pages specifically. I think those are the things that when when they give the the weight to those splash pages, those are the things that stick in your mind and those are the things that they'll stay with you forever just because they're they're the the like for instance like the first time uh the doctor is hit by the by the rays and he become and he like basically dematerializes and that that like mm. I I can visualize it right now and the I mean one thing he does that really does only work in comic form that I was just looking at the movie again last night but the one thing he does in, in the comic that can't be done really in a movie um, is this recursive nature so so I know we're going to be talking about all the characters but there's a a conceit where Doctor Manhattan uh, that character who you said like hit this you know where he gets uh, basically uh, disintegrated and he reintegrates himself. His sense of time is also, he's experiencing all time at once in the story. Mm -hmm. um, and the comic works the same way. There are phrases that are crossing between times. We're getting flashbacks where the same dialogue is commenting on a scene that's going on in the present. And um, you read a comic the same way that Dr. Manhattan experiences time, which is, there is no end. It's all there at once. All the pages are there equally. You can flip between all of them. Um, and uh, so there's one storyline that's happening serially, the investigation of how uh, how the comedian, who murdered the comedian. Um, right. But in another way, you can, you can pick up that story and move into all the different parts at any point. And I was doing that a lot today when I was going back over the book. Um, so you can, it's a, both a recursive book and it's also, um, I guess, a holographic book in that all the parts seem to speak to the other parts. And so by yeah. reading into one, reading into, there's a thing where uh, there's a pirate comic, 
for no reason than he that Alan Moore decided, yeah. okay, I'm just gonna have a pirate comic in here. This is what co- happened to comics when superheroes became out of favor, and all the dialogue in the comic in the pirate comic comments on all these various storylines um, in a way that's really great. And the dialogue seems to sometimes the, you'll see the text from the pirate comic overlapping with the story that's going mm-hmm. on right now. Um, there's a classic moment when um, the pirate is on. Um, uh, he's there's a there's a shark that's been killed and he's having to eat the shark, and then it cuts to a police uh, detective sparking the phone saying, "What do you mean, raw shark, raw shark?" And then he's like, he realizes you're talking about Rorschach. Mm-hmm. And then it's the tip off <laughs> that Rorschach is being. It's the tip line where they're where where they're coming after Rorschach. Yeah, I, I just love that stuff. Yeah, I've heard people yeah. and I've heard people mention like the tales of the black freight freighter. Uh, like that was the, that that was where it lost a lot of people. Like people who weren't necessarily accustomed to reading a comic book story. And it's so funny because like you say that it does do that reflection with the real world. Things events mm-hmm. that are happening are directly re- reflected. But by the end, we come to find out that it's also reflecting the overall story that we didn't know the end to the mystery of, you know, like it's like it doesn't pay off until that final issue. And people must have been just like, so like, why is this in here other than to reflect what's going on? (laughs) Well, and there's a great thing, too, where the the writer uh, of the Black Freighter comic is becomes part of the story. And you realize you're meeting this guy. Yeah. So it's one of those things where. um like when I teach writing, um, as Luke had to uh, had to uh, persevere through a week of this. Um, <laughs> but one of the things I tell people is, um, you know, when you're when you have a side character coming on to do one thing, you start looking for all the ways you can use them, and you know, give them double uses, triple uses, um, find as many things as you can do, and this kind of act of compression um, makes your story. Um, not only more efficient, but it seems like a, um, yeah, I, I'm trying not to reuse the word resonate, but it's the same kind of thing where, where um, like I had a side character come on, I just need him to provide this one set of information. And then I had a later scene where I'm like, well, I need some more information to come out and I reuse the same character. And by the end of my first novel, this character was critically important to the plot mm-hmm. um, in a way that I hadn't planned on at all. And you see him doing that. And I don't know how... If he wrote all twelve, if Alan Moore wrote all twelve of these issues before they even started making, you know, drawing them, um, but you see that same kind of thing—a character and a reference shows up in in episode one or issue one, and it and it it gets uh, brought up again in the last issue. It's it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how much he had planned out, but in my research, I saw that he was still discovering things as he went. So. Uh, I mean, I guess it's a spoiler. We're we're gonna be a bit pretty spoilers for this whole entire thing. I think anybody who's listening, they've only had thirty years to get to <laughs> to read this book. So, yeah, one of the things I specifically read was that he didn't know that Rorschach was gonna die um, when he was originally started, and it wasn't until he said around issue four where he realized that uh, Rorschach's black and white view of morality and unwillingness to compromise was going to lead to his death eventually. Wow. So at the very least, there were things still in flux that it's it's interesting that he was able to wrap things up and make it look like he planned it all along, but <laughs> essentially it sounds like he didn't. That's a kind of an illusion. Storytelling <laughs> on the fly like that really blows me away too. Like it reminds me of like uh, manga, like people who, mangakas, who who actually write manga. They The way that they start out, usually they'll have like a few issues 
out and then and then they're just going like and then they never stop they go weekly 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 yeah. weekly forever for a decade sometimes right decade you're right years. and yet they have to tie all these things back in that they set up early on and like it blows my mind it's like in, i don't even know if i could comprehend approaching a story in that way well here's a trick i had to learn um to go when i went from novels to comics was so i was writing this planet of the apes comic um and it was going to be going on for a while um, and, uh, I didn't know, uh, how it was going to end. Um, but, uh, one thing I, one trick I learned was, um, to go ahead and have interesting details happening in the comic. And then, um, later when I was looking around for plot things to fill in, I would go back looking through and saying, oh wait, we never finished what was happening with those guys. And then they would get their own story. And it looked like I'd planted them back in issue number one. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. But it was it was pure desperation. It's like you're an improv uh, performer and you're looking around for what props you have around you on the table. And then right. you want to use that thing yeah, totally. and reuse it. And then it looks completely like a, a planned thing. I think Neil Gaiman talks about um, like planting seeds in, in his fiction that he doesn't know if they're going to come to anything. He doesn't know if he'll develop them later on, but he plants all these seeds. And then when he goes back, he looks for seeds that he can cultivate and, 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 and develop. So I think that's an interesting way to think about when you're writing that, those early things like first drafts and planting seeds. And then like later on, you can identify what was interesting. What do you want to focus on? Right? Yeah. No, exactly. And then when you're writing, yeah, when you're writing the next draft, you can cut out the ones that don't come to fruition. I mean, comics, yeah. uh, you know, coming out monthly, I couldn't go back and edit those first issues and pull things out. So uh, I, I was just banking on people would forget that those other things didn't pay off. But the few things that did pay off, they're like, wow, that was amazing. That was in right. chapter one. That was in the first <laughs> issue. And they can almost serve as like red herrings too, right? Like you could almost set something up and they'll be they'll be mm. distracted by this. <laughs> Minted all along. <laughs> right. So Luke, I did want to ask you real quickly, um, what's your history with this material? Yeah. Oh, so I'm new to it. I'm the novice we were, we were discussing. Um, I'm not only new to this, I'm also new to comics. I... I I've maybe flipped through a few of them in my day, but I've never really read one. Um, I've never sat down and consumed an entire comic. So that's how much of a novice I am. And this was my first introduction to it. And I loved it. And like you said, I think it's because I'm the English major. And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know comics could do this sort of thing. And I was geeking out all over these the the symbols and the themes and just the the structure of the whole thing was so awesome. And uh, I, I remember thinking like, well, maybe this is super common for all comics and I just don't know about it. And if so, then like, you know, <laughs> fuck me. <laughs> but <laughs> so that's a great thing with um, I think with this story in general, too, is because you can you appreciate clearly you said you loved it. And yet it's yeah. a deconstruction of this genre of, of comic books and of the superhero genre specifically of comic books. Right. And so it's like. For someone who does read comics, there's like even there's more for you to see subversions, subversions of and like, uh, I think that's uh, ultimately I think that's a huge reason why it was such a massive hit for for comic book readers. And then and then it kind of broke through, right? It's like broke through this medium to, to become something that that I don't nothing else up to that point really had. Yeah, right. No, it was clearly a, a huge, a huge step. But also, it wasn't purely a subversion in that. You know, Alan Moore loves comics and his mm-hmm. love is deep. Um, and so you 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 see that um, uh, all throughout the comics. So he's he's both paying homage to these comics and pointing out some of the obvious flaws. I and mean, we can get mm-hmm. into, you know, Rorschach's black and white view is also, you know, a little uh 
ultra right wing, a uh, little fascistic, you know, and mm-hmm. that was built into the comics that he was adapting. So, mm-hmm. you know, when he takes these characters, when they get a hold of these comics from EC Comics, um, and they get a hold of the question and Blue Beetle um, and um, Captain Adam, and they're like, "What do we do with these characters?" Um, that was the original premise of Watchmen. It's like, well, we're going to reintroduce these people to DC because we just bought this other comic company, mm-hmm. and we've got to introduce these characters. Uh, and instead, he he sort of made them new things based on these EC comic, uh, uh, not archetypes, but these prototypes. Mm-hmm. So the question yeah. becomes Rorschach, and uh, Captain Adam becomes Doctor Manhattan. Um, it's so he he loves these characters deeply as well as as subverting some of the tropes. And that's some of the problems I have with the movies, but you guys will get into the movie stuff later. Yeah. We're going to get into the movie next week. Um, I did want to mention, so in my research, I saw that he said that, uh, yeah, what you were talking about, he didn't mean it as, as a deconstruction to like break it. Mm-hmm. He, he was hoping to widen the scope and sort of broaden the horizons for comics and expand it. And he actually was kind of disappointed in what he thought was kind of a narrowly focused, uh, things that followed after inspired by it and, and like this run of like all these grim and gritty comics and how he felt like a lot of them actually kind of missed the points that he was trying to make and that it wasn't about the grim and grittiness of it so much as um, he was just trying to expand what could be in a comic and what what uh, what comics can do as an art form. Right. I wanted to ask you guys, actually, based on basically what Luke just said, I think that some of the popularity that comes from Watchmen is misinterpretation of the material. I think that people mm. people sometimes maybe click into Watchmen for the wrong reasons, um, which I find to be interesting because it's like I think I think there are people who click in and they see because I, I think what it comes from and this is just my own theory on it is I think that superheroes typically are are, are idolized and it's something to strive for and so I think in in showing superheroes in this way there are people who are accustomed to that who maybe read it and saw these characters as maybe somebody to idolize when that wasn't Alan Moore's intention it was more to show a more humanized more realistic version of these characters while also having them clearly not be that all that realistic right i mean um what i love about it is that there's the range of psychological profiles for these for these various characters um so with rorschach you've got um just the examination of what it'd be like to be batman basically mm-hmm. um right <laughs> just ultra committed who's Crazy man. Who's not a billionaire. Who's not a billionaire <laughs> and smells yeah. awful, evidently. Um, uh, they keep referencing uh, Rorschach's smell all throughout the book. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with Dr. Manhattan, you've got this idea of like, well, if we if Superman was actually here, I mean, how does he maintain his humanity when he's indestructible? Right. And he's immortal. Right. And really, like, ultimately, all it is, is is his family upbringing for Superman. But like, what if that didn't happen? You know, what if what if Superman right. gained his powers later in life, like Dr. Manhattan? How would like you say, how would you maintain that humanity? Right. Yeah, and you've got, and you know, the evil Superman trope has been done a few times now, but it was, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, there's that movie Brightburn that came out, and I haven't seen it, but mm-hmm. it's basically what if mm-hmm. Superman grew up evil? Um, well, there's Red Sun as well. The the like, if what if what if uh, oh, right. he landed in Russia? Yeah, and Mark Wade um, did. Oh, I'm blocking on the name for Boom Studios. He did a comic. Basically, is like what if Superman was was evil and you see mm-hmm. that in the boys right now too you've got right. mm-hmm. uh valerian who's uh you got an evil superman in that 
in that series. Mm-hmm. So that's been done a lot, but it was the first time really that I remember seeing someone do a serious uh, take on uh, how does Superman hold on to his any kind of humanity and um, in the face of just having way too much knowledge. <laughs> and it's a great, like I said, it's a it's a great it's a great comic for English majors because you can sit around forever debating the philosophy of Rorschach's uh, Manichaeism and and uh, you know the humanity of characters uh, like Dan uh, the Night Owl um, and then um, yeah everything in between it, the the, yeah. the the scope of the book covers all of the possibilities and like Ozymandias as well like we'll we'll, um, we'll get more to yeah. that but just like you know th- this idea of like. Uh, is he a hero or not? Is he utilitarianism right. is essentially what he's championing? Yeah, right. we're gonna get into all of that. We're gonna we're gonna dive into a lot of these subjects uh, a little more thoroughly. But before we get into that, I did want to ask you, Daryl, about your announcement. I saw on Facebook that your novel Spoonbenders is going to be in production for, I believe it was Showtime. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of these details. Yeah. So. Um... So it had been optioned a couple times, and uh, Greg Berlanti Studios, who, the guy who makes uh, not only all those uh, all those comic book uh, uh, series like uh, Flash and Arrow and Supergirl, but a, a ton of other uh, series on television, his production company uh, with Universal optioned it, and then uh, we recently Showtime just committed to the pilot, so uh, they'll be making a pilot, and uh, the nice thing is that Showtime tends to. Uh, if they if they commission a pilot, they tend to make the show, as opposed to nice. broadcast television where they may look at you know if they looked at twenty pilots they'd buy five. Showtime's mm-hmm. like no, mm-hmm. we're we're funding this pilot and we're that's going great. With that's fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, so uh, we'll yeah, we'll absolutely. see how it goes. It'll um, uh, I'm an executive producer on the show and uh, uh, contracted to write one of the episodes, and uh, so it should be fun. That's so cool. That's that's great, and I'm gonna want to cover that when that comes out. <laughs> uh, knock on wood, because uh, I mean, I mean, I have to, obviously. But, so. Sure, of course. Yeah, that's that's very exciting. I'll be so bitter and jaded in Hollywood by the time you talk to me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and 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 I should mention too, like you were gonna come on the podcast before this, and then you announced it, and I was like, holy crap! <laughs> like it was ended up being like a fortuitous time, I think, to have you on, but. Um, that was not originally something that I knew about. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a surprise to me too. <laughs> it's great. It happened it's really great. quickly. Congrats. So yeah, I was really happy. All right. So uh, for people who may not have listened before, essentially, I'm just going to move through some different topics here. We're going to talk a little bit about Alan Moore and his biography, um, trying to just touch lightly on things and, and, and try and keep the pace moving along. But uh, are we ready to get into that? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So Alan Moore, uh, I, I just want to talk about him a little bit generally, and you guys can fill in if you know anything about him, you know, to help me fill in the details. But he seems like an eccentric guy. <laughs> I think it's safe to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he describes himself as, uh, I think it was like a ritual magician. Um, he, he's an anarchist. Um, he's an Englishman. He seems very out there, extremely famous, um, has done many comics that everybody knows, including like The Killing Joke and Swamp Thing and V for Vendetta and From Hell. And, and, and a lot of adaptations, right? So we could potentially be returning to him at some point to talk about these movies. Um, although, like you said, he uh, he's an, always a huge fan of the adaptations that get made from his work, um, which we can get into more of, like, there was some legal stuff going on with this comic in particular. Um, but, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the most famous f- figures in comics, it seems like to me. 
Then you have Dave Gi- Dave Gibbons, and I, when I was looking at the stuff he's worked on, it was like, okay, he's just worked on everything because <laughs> I couldn't believe like, it was it was an immense list of projects that that, that uh, he's worked on, and in um, I don't know, like it was interesting hearing you talk a little bit about like the direction that you give artists and. And that that fascinates me, the collaboration between the writer and the artist and how that all works. And I'm sure it's u- somewhat unique to every situation. But um, I wonder if, if either of you could talk a little bit to someone who is a complete comics novice. Um, how much of this stuff um, is, you know, like the artistic vision of the of the illustrator versus the the writer coming in and saying, this is how I want the character to look? Well, I could talk a little bit about that, how it worked in my case. Um, yeah. So I like uh when I worked on the Planet of the Apes book, for example, I worked with a great artist from Brazil, Carlos Magno, and he was amazing. So we would say, you know, we need we set the we set the comic in this sort of time between all the movies when humans and apes were still living together, and the technology technology was kind of steampunkish, and we and I'd say to Carlos, so we need some sort of you know, horse-drawn carriage, and he would design five of them and say, pick one. And they're like, <laughs> we need a ca- wow. we need a castle, but one that would be lived in by apes. And he'd be like, he'd give, you know, uh, several different versions. Um, and he would also um, do, put tremendous amount of detail into side characters. So that thing I was talking about where sometimes you, you when we're talking about plot seeds, uh, at mm-hmm. one point in Planet of the Apes, I said, okay, I need two thugs, thug one and thug two, drag our guy off off to jail and these two guys appeared who were so specific i mean one of them there were two humans um one of them was dressed like a native american kind of but kind of a steampunk guy but he had feathers uh one guy looked like a buccaneer but he had a tiny uh monkey on his shoulder which raises all (laughs) kinds of issues in the planet of the apes universe it's like wait a minute there's apes and there's monkeys how do the apes feel about the monkeys um and the monkeys could the monkey talk no the monkey can't talk so we had to cover a lot of ground there but these guys were so specific in their looks um that by the end of the series they had their own subplots and their own noble deaths Every, just about everybody died. That was like my Game of Thrones. Uh, a ton of a ton of people died. Spoiler. In my, my 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 run, my couple year runs on Planet of the Apes. Um, so um, yeah, and the best kind of um, uh, the best kind of relationships are sort of collaborative. In all the comics I've written, it was script first and then um, art second. Um, and uh, but there is another style of comic called the Marvel style, which came from, you know, Stanley and Jack Kirby, where Stan would come up with a very general kind of outline. Jack Kirby would draw these panels and then Stanley would come up with a dialogue to fit in the panels. And sometimes the story would mm. change radically in the dialogue after the <laughs> panels were already drawn, uh, mm-hmm. which seems crazy to me. But Ex- yeah. uh, that's the way they did it. And so, uh, but the best the best way it works is when it's collaborative, and also in comics more so even than prose, um, the editor is more part of the process, especially early on, because usually you don't own the writer doesn't own the intellectual property. There are creator owned comics where you have you know that kind of control, um, but usually, like I don't own Planet of the Apes. I don't. I didn't own Green Hornet when I worked on that. So. Uh, there's people who own the intellectual property who have uh, who want to weigh in. And also the editor is shaping not only your comic, but what's going on in the larger uh, that company's comic universe. 
Um, so there are more boundaries about what you can and cannot do, and the editor is more part of the story process than it is in prose when you're just trying to make the novel work and the editor is just to help you get your vision across, and it's a really personal thing. It's much more collaborative. It's more like making a movie. Uh, comics is more like making a movie than, than writing a novel. Mm. And just from my perspective as somebody who's read read a lot of comics, this I, I don't think you can separate the two. I don't think Dave Gibbons and, and um, Alan Moore can be separated for this project just because the the visuals I, they don't stand on their own i mean they, they clearly do in terms of like content but i just mean that like the two together created the masterpiece that is watchman and and right i, I don't like I, like we've said i don't really know what the exact collaboration looked like but it, it's in the same way that like the stanley jack kirby stuff went like for so long stanley was the was the one that everybody would talk about and like at the end of the day like kirby Kirby is is uh, was such a massive part of everything that Marvel became, um, and I, I'm sure that it's the same way with with Watchmen here. What what I read was that uh, Alan Moore would send, I think they called them the scripts, and then um, he would have he would even like have panels ready to go because it was often the nine panels, and he'd have them all ready to go to to start drawing. And as soon as he got the scripts, he'd start working on them. And I think that that was sort of the process. I assume it was more like the writing was done and then sent to him. But it was definitely collaborative. And I there was stuff I read about them discussing like how things were going to look and what kind of style they were going to go for. And and a lot of these visual elements it seemed like were planned collaboratively. And uh, I have a friend of mine who, uh, Bill Willingham, who had one of his first jobs in comics, was uh, drawing for Alan Moore. And he said that, you know, the scripts were crazy. They were just like Alan Moore sitting down in front of the typewriter going, okay, we got to make a comic. And he starts talking to stream of consciousness, talking about everything about the comic. And eventually he worked his way to talking about panels and <laughs> talking about what what's going to happen in the comic. Uh, but his scripts were unlike anything else, uh, according to my friend. Wow. Um, um, and the it. weird and the weird thing about comic is is that unlike some other art forms, it's a really loosey goosey format, and so it's really artist driven about uh, and I mean artist as well as writer and artist about how do you format this page so the information gets across. I followed a really strict kind of screenwriter's format where it was like page one, panel one, and then a description of what the key parts that had to be in the panel. And then it was dialogue. And so and then it would go to panel two. But I would usually start off the top of the page saying there's I picture four panels going on in this page. And here are the four panels or here are six panels. Um, so <laughs> it's comics is really loose about that kind of thing. Whatever gets the job done is, is what works. And I really admire people uh, like this friend Bill William, who later switched to writing um, um, you know, he worked with the same guy for a hundred, hundred issues, hundred and two issues of uh, fables. So people who have those, who have that kind of collaborative process, they, I imagine they must get to a certain kind of shorthand mm -hmm. where they know exactly. Yeah. Or I've seen some of Bill's scripts for fables where he just says, uh, "Bucky, uh, just do whatever characters you'd like to show in the background here, whatever your favorites are, and let them go." <laughs> wow. That's so cool. So I, I got to mention there was a special thanks page in mine where Neil Gaiman was listed, which immediately caught my eye. That's, a, that's an author that we've covered before on the podcast. And I was curious, like, what was his involvement in this and why was the special thanks there? Um, from what I could tell, it seems like uh, Alan Moore consulted him to find the quotations that end each section. Oh. And that Neil Gaiman helped helped him develop or, or choose what quotations to put at the end of each section, which I just thought that was kind of a fun connection to uh, another author we've covered 
another very big one in, in comics. Those are also incredible, by the way. Like just the that line that they leave you with is so. It's always so weighty. It's got so much built into mm-hmm. it, and it's com- it's from a completely different either you know material of whether it's the Bible or or from a song like a Bob Dylan song. I just that that right. I love that part of the of this uh, comic book. Well, you have Neil Gaiman to thank for that. <laughs> like for the Rorschach stuff, you get. Uh, the Blake poem, you get, you know, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, you mm-hmm. know, your fearful symmetry. Um, you've got, yeah, you've got Dylan through there. You've got this running theme in the, um, uh, I don't know if it's issue 12 or 11, where it's like two writers were approaching. And so I've got Jimi Hendrix singing the Bob Dylan lyrics in my head right. um, while seeing them on the page. Yeah. You know, and you've got two writers in the pirate comic. You've got two writers yeah. who... Um, who look like Jehovah Witnesses who are on bicycles in the, in one street scene. And then you've got Rorschach and the Night Owl riding these like hover bikes across the snow in the, in the Arctic. It's mm-hmm. in the Antarctic. It's, it's uh, that kind of doubling and redoubling. Uh, you know, it's really addictive. It makes it feel so dense too. It makes it feel hugely important. I love that stuff. Uh, that just reminds me, I read I read a thing, and I'm going to paraphrase the quote, um, probably butcher it a little bit, but Alan Moore was talking about his, his relationship to magic and being sort of, you know, saying he's this sort of ritual or systematic magician. And he was talking about how um, essentially magic is like symbols and phrases that affect the world um, and supernaturally. And he felt like the modern day artist is the equivalent to a, to a shaman from the past and that your words and your stories are affecting the world directly as if magic spells. So it's, it's interesting. It's like kind of like trying to ground it in a little bit in, in our reality. And I thought it was kind of fun, you know, think of uh, storytellers as shamans. Well, yeah. And it, it, there's certainly that same kind of quality where, the, where the, as you're reading it, the images seem to, as they keep redoubling, um, seem to uh, take on more and more power and they seem yeah. to almost have this feeling of inevitability. So there's one, like, for, just take one example. Um, there's this uh, recurring image of a snow globe and breaking glass that happens. There's a broken perfume bottle. There's glasses that are breaking. There's mm-hmm. there's the snow globe uh, that uh, uh, Jenny remembers from her childhood. Her first memory is of a snow globe. And then... You have the the Mars glass castle all coming down around them, and it, um, and then at the end you have uh, uh, Ozymandias's uh, glass dome in the middle of the snow that that everything that comes down and the snow begins to fall into the dome. Uh, yeah. Um, so by that point you're like you feel like everything is connected that somehow their yeah. own words and their own memories are willing these things to happen. And and to speak to what you were talking about earlier with like the sort of cyclical nature of like a beginning and an ending in that chapter, it starts with um, Ozymandias having opened that dome and it's all white with kind of one little butterfly left in the snow. And and then in the end, we get the blast from the from the crazy alien creature and we see yeah. like the silhouette of of people being basically killed. And uh, and it kind of fades to white, right. which is a re- itself a recurring image, right? And it's this whole I love that yeah. that it's just like it's like poetry. Yeah, those silhouettes of people dying, like the Hiroshima shadows that yeah. occur of the lovers embracing, yeah. mm-hmm. that happen all throughout the book. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and, and even in Rorschach's face, uh, notably at the end, you can see that it looks sort of like the lover's embrace in one of his last panels. It, it's just it gives me chills to think about uh, another moment like that that really stood out to me was the Mars crater mm-hmm. that looks like a smiley face, like the real crater that actually looks like that. And using that to echo all the other smiley faces they've had, it's it's wild. Here's my favorite Hollywood story. So I'm friends with uh, Paul Tobin. He's a comic book writer, and he's friends with Malin Ackerman, uh, who plays the Silk Spectre in the movie. And oh, wow. and Paul and Paul had, had this idea. He's like, you know, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, they kind of miss this really important moment that needs to happen at the very end. And it's when Dr. Manhattan kills Rorschach. And, and Paul says it was his idea. He said, Malin, pass this on to the to Zack Snyder, but tell him that after Dr. Manhattan uh, basically disintegrates and blows up Rorschach, you got to pull back and it makes a Rorschach blot across the snow in his blood. Nice. And that got into the movie. I'm That's like, awesome. Oh. That's cool. I will say with yeah. that scene, how did you, uh, we'll talk about this right now just because we were here. How did you feel about Night uh, Night Owl seeing this? Right? I felt like there was something very specific oh. about Night Owl not, see, like no one seeing Rorschach being killed by Man- Dr. Manhattan in the in the comic book here. Right. And yeah, in the comic book, actually, Dr. Manhattan even says to uh, Ozymandias, or in the movie, as I was learning to pronounce it, Ozymandias. I'm like, what? Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's just my uncultured. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I can change my, my brain I, yeah, to say I it say like that. Ozymandias. Yeah. I don't know. Hey, I'm still saying yeah. Hermione on Harry Potter. Oh, so. man. <laughs> um, but uh, um, yeah, uh, Dr. Manhattan even lies uh, to Ozymandia says, um, I don't think he's going to be making it, uh, you know, to the mainland. Right. Um, right. Um, I don't know. You know, there is something about uh, in the comic, Dr. Manhattan not showing that, not letting other people see that. It's almost a kindness uh, to Dan yeah. and Jenny and those other people that he's taking care of things. He's actually, you know, in some ways, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And Project's right. one of the few. And uh, but of course, uh, the 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 great thing about that ending that the the real ending of the book um, is that Rorschach wins. I mean, his his journal gets out there, and he does yeah. he does spill the beans. Well, well or, or we're left to believe that perhaps it does, right? right. It kind of ambiguous. Right. And now we'll find yeah. out in the HBO series whether or not what they <laughs> what they take from there. From from the trailers that I've seen, it definitely gets out there. Yeah. <laughs> So let me give a, just a brief description of Watchmen, and then we can get into sort of our topics I want to talk about. So Watchmen depicts, depicts an alternate history where superheroes emerged in the 1940s and 1960s, and their presence changed history so the United States won the Vietnam War and the Watergate break-in was never exposed. In 1985, the country is edging towards World War III with the Soviet Union, and freelance costume vigilantes have been outlawed, and most former superheroes heroes are in retirement or working for the government. The story focuses on the personal development and moral struggles of the protagonists as an investigation into the murder of a government-sponsored superhero pulls them out of retirement. So that's the general overview, and I think that leads us well into talking about the murder of the comedian, and I think the comedian as a character and the opening of this of this book. So for it was it's always been fascinating to me that that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons built into this world the golden age of of kind of within their world, like this sort of like we needed heroes, so people became mask vigilantes. And it was a simpler time, right? There was innocence in the culture. There was innocence in their in their superheroes and their villains. And we start to see the gray, the graying of that, and that sort of like as they start to phase out 
um, you know, there, there's things that they're troubled by, whether it's like Mothman has like his alcoholism that he struggles with, things like that. As as we start to lose our innocence and Vietnam is beginning and we've we have some other yeah. heroes who start to take up mantles and and because they were inspired by the early heroes. And I think that's so interesting to think about because it's a commentary on comics, early comics versus more modern comics, as well as commentary on like our political infrastructure just like how how people felt about the government at that time and in the early days versus as we get towards vietnam and and kind of like not trusting the government and things that go on and and mm. what would happen if if watergate was never revealed and also the sexual mores i mean so one of the members the silhouette she's kicked out for for being a lesbian um right um uh, and then she's murdered by a fan and you're hoping that is just or by an enemy um You've got other gay members of the group closeted um, uh, gay men in that original, you know, uh, golden age group. Um, you have a, a a rape that's part of that golden age. Um, that's an important plot point. And so right. there's 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 small things I would probably argue with about some of the sexual politics that Elmore does that he may even be changing his mind about. Um, right. Uh, you know, there's a there's a gay woman later on who's who's just really mad that she's not a man, and it's like, well, it could be an early trans character <laughs> or just a weird take on lesbians uh, yeah. that I don't think is that particularly well thought out. Um, but uh, just the fact that, of course, there had to be gay people in the past, mm -hmm. but it was never going to appear in the Golden Age comics. Right. Uh, just like there was hardly, you know any people of color at all unless they showed up as you know villains or uh stereotypical japanese you know uh, uh fu manchu style villains um so yeah right. you got the stuff about the government uh you've got the the sexual moray stuff um and you've also got uh, an examination of like why did people dress up it's such a you know a weird thing um, right. Was it sexual? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they keep they keep coming back to that. Was it a sexual thing? Yeah. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, at one point he addresses it. It kind of is, saying, it seems like for some of them. <laughs> some of them it really is. I yeah. mean, some of it seems <laughs> yeah. to be. And in fact, I mean, there's a, there, I mean, Watchmen is really a funny book, too. And I hope people keep that in mind. There's there's a great overlapping um, uh, sequence where Dr. Manhattan's doing a TV interview at the same time. Uh, Night Owl and Silk Spectre are being, you know, mugged by a gang and they beat up on the gang. And this is the most erotic thing they've done together. And there's <laughs> yeah. overlapping dialogue where it says, well, the crowd is really getting aroused in the television show. Mm -hmm. And that 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 dialogue is right next to them both finishing up going. <sighs> and, and then Silk Spectre actually turns and lights up and smokes afterward. Right. It's, you know, yeah. uh, the, the comic's full of wordplay and uh comedy like that yeah that intercutting throughout is just unbelievable to me it's just like it, it the way that everything's so well connected and and like it, it's just genius and you know every every once in a while it might seem a little on the nose but it's i appreciate it for it you know it's like sometimes there might like the shark thing as a, as a joke totally works for me it's so funny like you were just talking about or the, yeah. there's the shot where uh the black the, the sailor from the black freighter story he's like taking a bite out of the gull which switches to a shot of like night owl taking a bite out of like a chicken wing and and yeah, <laughs> like he's you know he's eating a raw goal and like i don't know I, I just thought the intercutting is just so genius to me throughout yeah and it reminds me a lot of film things do you know famously lots of movies do that these days right like 
making these connections mm-hmm. with scenes and overlapping dialogue to where it pl- spills into the next scene and stuff like that. And it, it was all there in the comics. Exactly. Yeah, I made a note last night when I was reading, like there's some sequences that are so much like Godfather Part Two, where it's like you'll the christening and the, the alternating mm-hmm. shots of the christening and the murder. Uh, yeah. He does that over and over again with the overlapping, you know, with overlapping scenes. And mm-hmm. um, and some of the best are when the dialogue's all coming from one half of the scene and the rest is silent and it's 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 the commentary is only coming from the other context. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, it could be a little on the nose and it, it'd probably be overbearing to film all of that and be like, okay, we get it. Um, uh, but at the time, it was eye-opening because nobody was working that hard exactly. in comics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's that's what it ultimately comes down to is like the the effort and the craft on both ends. It's uh, it's just like this this like traditionally comics were seen as, you know, I would say if somebody who's more of an elitist with their with their entertainment would say that like comic books were were seen as like kitty books or funny books or, you know, comics or just like throw away, read them one week, throw them away the next week. But Alan Moore is showing that that's not the case. And like you said, it is it is a love letter to comics. And and I actually heard that he does not like the term graphic novel. Like he thinks that it's it's like it doesn't it should be comic book. It is a comic book. It always has been a funny book, like like a funny book in the in the way that people used to call comics funny books. Right. So I want to talk a little bit more about the comedian, because to me, that character sort of represented um, sort of his dark take on almost a Captain America type character. And I love the way that he was so he was a mercenary and his morals shifted throughout and uh, the the involvement in Vietnam, obviously, which we win because of Dr. Manhattan and how that he talks about like, I don't like what kind of sickness would this country have gone through had we lost this war, which obviously we did. So this alternate history creates uh, this alternate view where they believe that they're not the sick ones, but we look at it and we're like, that society is sick in its own way and in a different way. And we got President Nixon serving his fifth term, right? <laughs> yeah. And and it's it's you can look at that and that makes you uneasy because you know how corrupt he is. And um I just love the 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 subtle alternate history that that sort of uh blossoms out into this really uh striking and 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 different version of America. And I think the comedian and then of course the death of the comedian, I think all symbolically ties into that. Yeah, and and um, that kind of reexamination of the American dream is explicitly in the text, uh, and it was and it, and it's hard for people reading now to remember uh, how terrifying and sp- specifically terrifying nuclear Armageddon was. We are much more worried about it then than we are now. Um, it was much more of a real thing. Uh, the Cold mm. War was. Uh, you know, was in effect and um, and it speaks to that kind of terror. And it's one reason why um, the movie perhaps doesn't work as well. We're just not as afraid of it as we were. Um, we've had now decades of nobody launching new nukes, lots of testing missiles, uh, but, yeah. you know, we're less afraid of it. And perhaps we should be still be just as afraid, but we're not. Yeah. Um, but it was to- it was completely of the moment. Um, when the book was coming out. So uh, the idea that someone would go to extreme measures uh, uh, to do something about it um, was really key. Um, With the comedian storyline, the one thing we don't want to lose track of is how good the the pure storytelling is 
of of the story with the murder mystery of the comedian and Rorschach's investigation. Yeah. One of the classic things that and, and Michael Shabins pointed this out and other people have pointed this out is one great thing about the detective story is the detective is allowed to to uh, go to all levels of society and go and intrude on and make uncomfortable all kinds of characters. Um, so it's Rorschach who drives this plot with his investigation and we follow him as he goes to see Night Owl and Dr. Manhattan and, and Adrian Veidt and all these people. Um, he that Driving that plot and the mystery itself is really well constructed with red herrings, um, with a burgeoning conspiracy it, and it's beautifully paced as well. So we keep talking about stuff that we people listening who haven't read the comic might be thinking this seems like a... a way too self-indulgent of an English major exercise, but it's also just a really, <laughs> you know, great detective story. Right. Yeah. From And, and like, I think that's why, why film noir had was so massive at, during its time, right? Like it, it does these great characters that go, that, that do go to the underbelly of society and can be up there with like super rich people. I think that works so well in this story as well. And that's, I think that's Batman at his best as well. Right. And that's very clearly Rorschach, yeah. the, the parallels between Rorschach and Batman are there. Um, but Batman at his best is when he is the world's greatest detective. So um, yeah. it is really compelling. It is really com- like the mystery there. It, it, I don't think many people figured it out before. And that's before. a perfect segue into talking about Rorschach, which I wanted to move on to next. Um, he's sort of our our every man's Batman, right? Like we said, he's, he's not a billionaire. He's poor. He's uh, someone who carries around a sign that says the end is nigh. Uh, during his normal life, he smells. Um, he's also extremely... He's extreme in his in his worldview, right? In his black and white view of mor- mor- uh, morality, and uh, the way he thinks that the city smells and reeks, and and that that's mimicked by the fact that he himself reeks, um, and and his disgust he seems to treat everyone with, um, but everybody else also treats him with a similar disgust and for, for what he is, and uh, I just think he's a fascinating character, and I, I want to get your guys' take on him. Uh, on one hand, he's despite his his smell and everything. He's he's such a riveting character, in some ways the coolest guy on the page, uh, but he also holds these reprehensible social views. Uh, he's always sure that people are, uh, you know, uh, cheating on their welfare. He's thinking about mongrelization, like all the stuff that we're that is now part of um, the political environment now, really explicitly, is in Rorschach. But people were so in love with Rorschach, he's just the coolest guy. Um, and losing track of how, you know, um, crazy and kind of um, his lack of empathy was kind of reprehensible. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. But he's such a great character. And that's where I think uh, we're getting into what I was talking about with um, maybe people latching onto the wrong parts of the story. As, as compelling of a character as he is, he's not someone to idolize. And I feel like that's the same that can be said for somebody like the Joker or somebody like the character in V for Vendetta. Like these these sort of like right. extremist views, but like they have their own sense of justice that they, they feel is right. And they're willing to go to extremes to to make sure that, that uh, their their sense of justice is is being taken up on the world. So with Rorschach, though, he his sense of justice. And I think this is to be said for a lot of these characters is he's still human. He is he has these rules and guidelines that he goes by and yet he's biased in certain situations. So as much as he's like, I will kill anyone for, for, you know, whatever prostitution, whatever, all the reasons that somebody murdered somebody, he's going to murder them. Um, 
there will be times that he'll cut somebody some slack based on if it's convenient for him at certain times in the story, which I find to be interesting. Right. So delving into, I think there's uh, one of one of the sections where we get the sort of psychoanalysis of Rorschach, I think is really interesting, right? And uh, I it, it sort of uh, shows that his worldview is one where he sees, he's very nihilist, and a lot of the characters are. And he, so, so he sees like a world without meaning and without values. And he, he has the human, maybe humanistic point of view of he has his own values that he's going to bring and his own morals, and he's going to force them onto a world that is, in his opinion, like amoral. Um, and so it's interesting because on one hand, he is a nihilist, but on the other hand, that's kind of not a nihilist thing to do, right? Like that's more of a human thing to do or a humanist or existentialist almost. Like I'm going to force or I'm going to find value and I'm going to find meaning through my own personal worldview. He even talks about the Rorschach test and how it's humans giving it meaning, right? Like looking at it isn't, it's just ink blots, but we find meaning, we attribute meaning to it. And uh, how that all plays with his dynamic as a, as a crime fighter and what he thinks is worth fighting against. Uh, I don't know, I, th- I found it fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there's this ongoing argument and uh, and everybody participates in it. I mean, one good thing about uh, the comic is that um, none of these points of view are unexamined. So in a, in a normal right. comic, you might uh, get only Batman's point of view and then there's no room to critique it or to have anybody else comment on it. Um, but that's the entire argument. And so this uh, looking for patterns to make meaning, obviously, you know, Rorschach's all about patterns, um, but people keep bringing up looking at patterns. Dr. Manhattan's whole philosophical struggle, too, is when everything is equally interesting, what makes life important? Uh, what makes, um, you know, it's only, he keeps saying it's only the human point of view that makes people think that humans are interesting. Mm-hmm. If, if you take the wider view, um, none of this matters at all. Um, so, right. yeah, so, I mean, so Rorschach um, is is the classic um, moralistic universe. I don't think he's nihilistic at all. I think he's, he's always trying to apply uh, uh, order in a way that's a very classic comic book. Um, there's good guys and there's bad guys. And one of some of the pleasures of comic books is that they're not gray. I mean, I, I, I'm a huge fan of comics and I enjoy sometimes just a, you know, a good guy punching a bad guy, even though intellectually, I know everything's way more complicated than that. And who's really a bad guy. And what's great about the, the, the discussion of Rorschach is we get his terribly abusive childhood, um, Mm. Um, so he's not just a one-note person, but we see not only his abusive childhood, but the thing that broke him psychologically that turned him into Rorschach uh, is there on the page. And so it's both critiquing what he's saying, but also saying this is the abuse that made him possible. Right. I actually love that it wasn't the the typical things you would see in a character that would that would turn him right. It wasn't the the sexual witnessing sexual acts and kind of that kind of scarring him through his mother with the prostitution. And it wasn't uh, her hitting him. It wasn't the, these sort of things. It wasn't until he saw like the darkest things that, c- that could possibly happen um, that finally breaks him. I-, I don't know. I find that to be one of my favorite scenes. I mean, dark, dark, but also really compelling. But, and there is some, and there's some weird sexual stuff in there. There's, there's a line when oh, he's absolutely. making his mask where he says, um, it comes from the dress of Kitty Genovese. So I don't know if you know the Kitty Genovese story was the uh, was partially debunked, which is the famous story in New York. A woman was killed, and the neighbors heard the screams and did nothing. 
And that mm -hmm. was going to be, you know, that was supposedly an in, indictment of urban living that all these people don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's feeding off of that. And so he gets a dress made for her, and that becomes his mask. And there's a line where it says, I cut it up so it didn't look like a woman anymore. Which, of right. course, leads <laughs> to the thing, a thing being cut apart so it didn't look like a person anymore is exactly the thing that makes him Rorschach. So, uh, yeah. Another example of Alan Moore just crossing the T's and dotting the I's and chopping various body parts to make them fit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that does lead me into our next topic, which is going to be the Silk Spectre, the original Silk Spectre, and then Silk, the second Silk, Silk Spectre, uh, Sally and Lori, um, sort of the major uh, female characters in this uh, comic. And I just wanted to say, in my research to this, I, I saw some people saying that uh, Alan Moore subverted a lot of the cliches and a lot of the tropes of comics at the time. However, he seemed to embrace the comic book woman and that these characters all exist in, in their relationships with men and have very little character outside of those interactions with men. Um, so, and, and I kind of agree with that. It seemed like they, they really were subservient to their male counterparts storylines often. Um, maybe not completely fair to cast it that way, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, and it also a really problematic rape where, where, yeah, uh, you know, Lori keeps saying as a daughter, rape is rape. And so she says that very clearly. And then her mom is like, well, it's more complicated. And she kind of saw the vulnerability in the comedian. And it's like, ha, huh, this is, uh, yeah, that didn't, uh, that didn't age well. That, yeah. that, that, that didn't, that didn't age well at all. I think that, um, to, Alan Moore's treatment of women and his stories, I think, is really interesting for this time period specifically, because I think of like the killing joke and what happens with Barbara Gordon mm -hmm. in the story. Um, it does seem like it's it, it, it like he uses them as plot for sure. It doesn't. It, it's, and like yeah. in this story, it seems to move along a lot of characters plots to have them, you know, sexually motivated by things or. Yeah. Um, at, at like 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 yeah. her whole re like Lori's whole reason for for being with Doctor Manhattan is pretty pretty gross at this point, right? Like she's like the the deterrent to keep him grounded by basically just having sex with him uh, every once in a while or something, and yeah, yeah. just to humanize hum him, keep yeah. him keep his feet on the ground in some ways. But it seems like he doesn't even enjoy sex anyways. Yeah. Right. And, you know, like you're talking about using sexual assault as a as a character motivator. And as a I mean, that's an, a longstanding trope in many, uh, unfortunately, in many stories. And um, that's definitely present here and present in a lot of those other, like you said, the killing joke. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating to look at how these characters, like you said, she breaks it off with Dr. Manhattan and immediately becomes, uh, you know, sexually involved with another character than the Night Owl and sort of fueling his growth. And, and it's just, uh, yeah, a lot of these, these they're, they're hyper-sexualized. It's often discussing the way that they make all the men feel around them, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that society views them. You could look at it as somewhat of a commentary on society, um, but I don't think there's enough there to, to say that he's completely... Um, trying to analyze this as a bad thing as much as somewhat embracing something. And how about Sally's, like, view of how she enjoyed the sexualization, right? Like, she she embraced it. Um, yeah. You know, you could see right. that as maybe embracing her sexuality and, and, like, being active in it. But at the same time, the stuff that goes on with the comedian is, is uh, I mean, it's dark. It's like, uh, how do you feel that that holds up? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I, on one hand, um, there is a generational thing where... Um, women of a certain age are maybe are not the perfect feminists 
And so there's a general, I know, I know a, 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 an older female writer who's gotten into trouble because her views about sexuality are, are, are not jiving with um, the youngest generation. And so they have a, there's a, there's different views of feminism going on in this, you know, um, uh, between generations of women. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, but everything, everything people have pointed out about the, there's only, you know, basically two women in the, in the plot. And um, um, on one hand, it's absolutely correct that in comics, um, yeah, the woman was the one dressed in the risque stuff and, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, Lori, when she's young saying like, what was up with that costume? Like, it was like, it was, you know, it was split down to my navel. Like, why did I think that was a good thing? Right. Um, and it, it does point out, it's like, yeah, why is that still exist in comics? Why? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so Alan Moore's aware of some stuff and he's aware of some of the, the, the bogus tropes in, in, um, comics. Um, and maybe, uh, Maybe now, if he wrote it different, they uh, there would be a more fleshed out, more interesting version of those characters that'd be in the book. Mm. Well, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, we're three guys talking about it, so right. we're probably not going to be able to break any new ground with it. Please um, write in I in the comment section on. below. <laughs> yeah, let us know how wrong we are. Um, but I, that does lead me to the night owl, uh, who has the romantic connection to Lori after she leaves with, uh, man, Manhattan, uh, Dr. Manhattan. And so I want to talk about him because to me, he seems to me like the most quote unquote good guy of character. He's sort of a nerd. Um, and we're talking about the second night owl here. Um, and he has all these gadgets and he seems to, to have gotten into it for like the most, um, I don't know, pure of reasons, um, he doesn't have a super strict moral view of the world like Rorschach. Um, he just is trying to do the right thing. He doesn't really know what it means. Um, and, and I think he's very likable. However, he's also kind of pathetic. And so uh, he, he's an interesting character to exist in this world among all these other, you know, huge personalities. Right. Yeah, I think there's a um, in one of Dave Given's notes uh, in, in the end of one of the editions I have is like is that uh, Night Owl doesn't know what he thinks. Rorschach knows exactly what he thinks. <laughs> Comedian thinks none of it matters. Um, and Dan just doesn't, um, he's he's sort of muddling through. Does he miss it? Does he not miss it? And he puts on a suit and he seems to come more alive. And he only feels like himself when he's in the suit. And he's only sexually competent when he's, you know, basically half wearing the suit. Um, yeah. So all the sexual stuff is rolled into it that's been part of comics since the beginning. Um, but his, he is our gateway character. I mean, he's there between... Uh, the more extreme versions. And he's definitely positioned as the guy we're supposed to uh, relate to um, as a, as a guy who doesn't know exactly what he thinks. And he's kind of muddling through and he's trying to do the right thing. Yeah. I find it interesting because he is kind of, because you talked about before, a lot of these characters were, were coming over from other properties and like, he is kind of this blue beetle character, right? but he very, like very clearly is also Batman related. Um, and in in sort of like his look, uh, his gadgets. Well, but like the gadgets are also kind of blue beetle-ish. So it's like it's like this like merging okay. of the two. But I find specifically like his ship that he flies around in the uh, uh, Archimedes, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that 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 design. It's such a such a cool uh, ship, and very clearly looks like you know the Batwing, I guess. 
Um, yeah. Well, and you got bats who are nocturnal flying creatures, and then you have a night owl, another nocturnal flying creature. So I think that there are parallels being made there. Oh yeah, and some of the silhouettes look exactly the same. But the but the yeah. the owl ship was as just as a just as a geek moment. It's one of my favorite things in there, and one of my favorite splash pages is uh, during the Vietnam riots in the cities. There's this great um, uh, where it's one of the few really large uh, panels of just the owl ship and the comedian writing in front of it mm, with, uh, the gun. Just, yeah. with the yeah. gun just lights up the whole page it's like ah oh, it's so great it's great i also um, love the shot of uh they repeatedly great shots of it but the shot of uh them break busting out um rorschach and he's kind of sticking his head out as they look out back at the at the prison that they've just left yeah i'm looking at that right now it's it's a great it's yeah, it's just a great shot. <laughs> uh, if only we could show it to you, listener. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, that does remind me of just some of the some of the scenes where it's uncomfortable because you're starting to like these characters, and then you're seeing them like being brutal towards protesters who are protesting like the war or Nixon, right? And so we're, we're that's where it really introduces the grayness of the like, do, how do we feel about them doing this? Like, can we root for them? And, and then, like, we see them, the, the meeting, the original meeting, there's, like, a list of all of the problems, like, threatening America. Mm-hmm. And some of them are, like, black uprising and, like, women want to vote. And, like, I don't know. Yeah, there's yeah. just, like, things black like that unrest, on the list, Hispanics right? are yeah. a problem. It's like, oh, God. It's just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and ultimately, like, the comedian and, and Dr. Manhattan, to a, to a degree as well, they're just, like, they do kind of embody, like, a dog of the military type thing, right? So it's, like, so it's like a comedian at this point, especially, isn't really thinking for himself until he stumbles upon something. Um, which kind of leads down the whole murder, like why he's killed, all that kind of thing. Um, and then Dr. Manhattan is is, yeah, like like is it for the greater good with Dr. Manhattan, or is it so he can pursue his his experiments and things that he's doing to further understand and see things that he didn't before? Um, it is interesting to to think of what what Alan Moore is trying to say there with like if you're following orders and you know there's there's not a lot of uh, critical thinking going on other than the orders. What what are you? Uh, you know, what are you walking into? And I think that's been explored a lot in comics since here as well as sort of like the who who do superheroes have to answer to and, and who do the Watchmen, who watches the Watchmen? Right. Who watches the Watchmen? And that's a great, another great transition. I want to move into talking about Dr. Manhattan, who is this, our one true super, superhero, right? He has superpowers and he's almost godlike. Um, I think he clearly represents uh, nuclear power, whether it's a nuclear bomb or nuclear energy, right? And he's this almost beyond belief power that is given to uh, America here and and maybe only loosely controls or understands and yet is the, sort of the deterrent and the power that that gives the gives our country so that uh, you know we can we can dominate things like Vietnam and I, I just he's a fascinating endlessly fascinating character maybe my favorite just really really interesting and then exactly like you were talking about the way he's sort of disconnected from humanity and uh, his his view of time and his power and, and, and all of these things um, play together. What are your thoughts on Dr. Manhattan? Well, and like, like I said at the beginning of this, I mean, his, his way of looking at time is, is the metaphor to look at this comic, I think. Um, uh, the way think, that nothing ever ends, that it's always, there's the only thing that's different between the past and the future is just uh, our limited view of, of thinking about it. So the the main arc of the story is as as you get a, a disconnected Doctor Manhattan, um, who is losing touch with his humanity, um, and in the Vietnam sequence with the comedian, 
you know, the comedian said, you know, the comedian shoots uh, this pregnant woman who uh, he that the comedian had gotten pregnant. And uh, yep. Dr. Manhattan says, well, you just shot her. And he goes, yeah. You, and you just stood there and watched. You could have turned the bullets to steam, you know, <laughs> uh, but yep. you're a snowflake. You're flaking out. And the comedian is the first one to see it, that he's being disconnected from humanity. He's he's observing, uh, but he's not emotionally connected. So the main task with Dr. Manhattan is for somehow Alan Moore had to get um, an, a philosophical argument that would uh, engage Dr. Manhattan. And I'm not sure it is entirely emotionally convincing. So the main argument gets to be that, um, well, uh, uh, Lori Jupiter, his, uh, you know, his partner, uh, uh, she's a, uh, the equivalent of a thermodynamic miracle, he says, and that she's so, um, that somehow through, um, that she's a, uh, a one-off, a totally unique thing that's only possible through her father and her mother and a unique combination of sperm and eggs. And she's this one unique thing that is somehow unique throughout the universe. And that's why he's going to care. Um, uh, as a, you know, as a junior in college, I thought that was an amazing argument. And then later I'm like, I don't know if I quite buy it, but um, it does get Dr. Manhattan uh, where he needs to be for for the story to end, for him to be reengaged one last time before he really does check out and leave completely, mm-hmm. you know, leave the universe. <laughs> right. There's, Is he truly convinced? <laughs> yeah. There's a few, uh, few things that I want to bring up with Dr. Manhattan. I love clearly the clock, the use of the clock and the watchmaker and the way that he perceives time. All that is just so, mm-hmm. it's so fun. It works so well. And it, I think it's, it, it just like this watchmaker's son becomes, you know, his, his dad pushes him into uh, a different profession. And because of that, an accident happens. And all of this is like predetermined. And it makes me think of another project that we covered recently, Arrival, and this sort of deterministic yeah. look at, at the future and, you know, where we come from, where we're going. And if, if Dr. Manhattan can see everything all at the same time, if everything's unfolding before him, then, um, you know, what can he change? What can he and can he not change? And I find that interesting when Alan Moore decided to, you know, take away his abilities in some ways. There's there's moments that he says it's cloudy based on like the tachyons and based on yeah. Ozymandias's plan. Um, it's kind of interfering with his view of the future, um, which I find to be interesting because it's like if he can see everything, yeah. then he should have been able to see this moment where he couldn't see or something. Right. Yeah. It's getting around the problem he's creating by giving this guy this this ability to see the future. Right. Like that's going to affect the way he behaves. So I have to cloud it somehow. And I'm going to introduce these tachyon particles and and all of that. But it is it is it, it, it's uh, I think even at one point, uh, Dr. Manhattan says that he we're all puppets. In the in our in our by fate, I'm just one who can see the strings. So he's sort of saying that he can't change it. He he is always going to do the things that he's going to do. Yeah, and this is something I've written about a lot, uh, and and a lot of it comes from Watchmen, I think. Um, so I, this is where I come clean. In Spoonbenders, I have a guy who can see the future, um, but he remembers the future like you remember the past. And he's kind of lost in time like Dr. Manhattan is in that when he wakes up in the morning, he has to figure out where he is in time. And sometimes he's in other time periods and sometimes he's in the present of the novel. That totally comes from Dr. Manhattan. Um, so uh, I'm sorry, Knopf, my publisher. Uh, that's that's not an original idea. Uh, and, and I'm really curious to see how they do this for the TV show. 
but I've always been interested in this idea of free will and determinism because that's what we're really talking about here is that, you know, um, the, the one thing about um, uh, quantum mechanics is that uh, there's almost all the times there's symmetry where uh, the it works out whether the whether you're moving forward in time or whether you're moving backwards in time. Uh, the math all works out. It, it's it's really um, uh, doesn't matter to the equation which way the time zero is pointing. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. um, so this idea of of puppet strings and determinism, like this ch this chain of events led to this thing, and it always has to happen because you that past has happened. And there's all the great overlaps of dialogue where he's having dialogue and Dr. Manhattan's talking to people in two different timelines, especially at yep. the end. Uh, it's beautifully done. And so you can't change the past. And they keep having, you know, he's having this argument with Laurie. He's like, this is the point where you're going to try to convince me to save the world. Um, and this is all this argument's going to end in tears. I mean, it's uh, yeah. it it's it's that argument about free will and determinism. Um, it's always been a great topic for science fiction. Um, and uh, I don't know if it would ever been done in comics before now, uh, before Watchmen came out. But uh, yeah, it influenced me tremendously. And it's, it's a, and, and like I said, you're reading a comic where this comic exists. You can you can bop between any of the pages and you're you're now thinking about the story the way Dr. Manhattan thinks about the story. Right. Yeah, I do love that. Yeah, I, I I have to we have to touch more on that Martian scene because it it blew me away and was one of the most visually striking moments and and I love that we're reading this uh graphic novel where uh everything's so grounded and it's very gritty and in the city often and this sort of thing and then we get this he's literally in a flying like mechanical castle of his own creation as they're touring Mars and we're seeing these massive vistas and and it's so otherworldly and fantastic and and unexpected as they're having this philosophical conversation about humanity and it just the idea that that's where we got with this story it was so it was so cool like to think about that moment and and uh it was so striking to me yeah it's the beauty of the comic yeah i would say that this this issue or this chapter where we where we kind of like it's set up by the him going to find the photo and then going like basically going to mars and then the entire issue from there is him on Mars. Uh, I found that to be my my favorite issue, I think. It, it's just endlessly, like you said, you can look at any panel and just kind of take in a different part of his life. And it's such a cool way to to represent that f for the reader. The, the backstory where we see him get uh, sort of disintegrated. I just love the detail of a circulatory system appearing and then like <laughs> uh, like like bones and then like somebody and then he just screaming and then it disappears. And like that's so creepy and such an awesome detail. I always love that part of it. Um, and then I love the way that that's used, too, is it, it kind of plays off of our knowledge of storytelling. Right. And often these otherworldly superhuman powers can be only be unmade in the places where they were made. You think like the one ring, right, like has to be taken to Mount Doom because um, that's where it was made. And here it's like uh, Ozymandias has figured out that this was how you uh, Dr. Manhattan was created. So if I do it again to him, I will I will destroy him. And, uh, you know, you believe that he, it works like when he does it, you're like, oh, my God, he just killed Dr. Manhattan. How is this? How is this possible? Um, and then I love the play on that of like, oh, that was the first thing I figured out was how to <laughs> remake myself. So, of course, I can. Yeah. If it didn't kill Osterman, why would it kill me? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's so good. It, it's great. And it's, and it's the perfect kind of, uh, you know, 
Lex Luthor Superman moment, where Superman stories depend on uh, Superman being uh, the moral superior. In this one, you know, Vite is who is our Lex Luthor character, um, is basically being outthought. It's it's like uh, he's so far beyond human that there's no possibility that he's going to be yeah. uh, defeated. He is God at that point. I do want to talk about another scene that happens there with with Ozymandias is when uh, he's ha- he has this conversation twice, basically. It's with, with Laurie, and as he's walking through, he's actually speaking in the past and in the future to both Rorschach and the group, as well as Laurie outside and how he needs to follow inside to find Ozymandias, like right before this this whole thing happens. Love that scene. Yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah I'm explaining this to Laurie 90 seconds ago. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that leads us into talking about Ozymandias, uh, Adrian Veidt. Uh, His plot is what sets this whole thing into motion. He is the sort of supervillain of this uh, series of comics. And uh, to me, he was the most comic book-y in that he's so over the top in so many ways. He's got an Antarctica, you know, uh, secret base and he's got a, a you know a, a mutant links and he uh is is supremely intelligent and in ultra control of his body so much so that it actually gives him superpowers in a way um and all of that felt very comic booky to me so um it was interesting that he ended up being sort of the super villain uh here and uh and then and then yeah where where that goes is uh, is pretty wild yeah and he um and he's always commenting on it. So there's all these little interstitial um, things that uh, Moore wrote where he's commenting on the story on the toy line and, you know, what, you know, what other toys can they bring in? And he's always there's an interview. There's a fake interview with him uh, where he's saying, yep, yeah. yeah, I, I listen to Electronica. That's a very superhero-y thing to want, you know, mm. to like. <laughs> um, so he's very aware of it. And it's 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 great. It's a, It's a great little thing that when he's. His most himself uh, in the Arctic lair, which, of course, echoes Superman's Fortress of Solitude, um, that he dresses in costume. That's the way he feels most at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he really does think of himself as, uh, as the next Alexander, as the next Ramses. I found a lot of that to be, to be really interesting, too, is like his backstory is it's it, so he would have us believe that his ultimate plan is there to kill to kill the few to save the many, that sort of thing. But is yep. it is it actually, or is it to to kind of li- like quench his own his own pride or like his own the, like his yeah. goals? Can, he wants to prove it to himself. He wants to be Alexander the Great. He wants to show that he could that he could conquer the world by saving it, kind of thing. Um, and I think ultimately, I don't I don't believe that he did it to to save the many. I think he did it for himself. So let's talk a little bit about the actual plot, right? Um, you know, uh, he he created this mutant squid hybrid with psych with a psychic brain that he cloned, and and he teleports it into New York, and it kills three million people. And the idea is that it's going to unite uh, Earth as one uh, sort of uh, nation almost, and it's going to eliminate wars. And the crazy thing is that it actually works. Like our heroes, quote unquote, don't prevent this from happening. And this Lovecraftian nightmare is is unleashed. Yeah, and there's a great comment upon, uh, you know, at one point Ozymandias says, "What you think I'm some Republic serial villain where I'm going to monologue and explain if there's any slightest chance that you could interrupt it? It happened 35 minutes ago. It's already happened. Yeah. Um, and of course, we've been viewing the the city of New York 
And we think, we don't know that it's hap- what we're seeing happen 35 minutes ago, but it seems to be happening at the same time, which of course plays into the theme. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's much more, it, I think both things are true, that there's his ego, he obviously talks about Alexander and cutting the Gordian knot. And I love that there's a Gordian knot lock company um, throughout the book. Um, there's great little visual jokes where, you know, Laurie's saying, you know, uh, you know, John, Dr. Manhattan, is, he's get, I get all tangled up with him at the same time that the Gordian knot guy is trying to unlock her door. Um, and, and later, Ozymandias talks about cutting the Gordian knot. So there's all this stuff that is like, I'm going to be the guy who's going to solve this intractable problem. And the movie that's playing when the squid thing blows up is the day the Earth stood still. So the classic science yeah. fiction movie about aliens coming down and all of Earth uniting, um, being forced to unite because uh, they've been told basically from outer space um, is absolutely part of science fiction. And you kind of want to believe it. And of course, the heroes do believe it. I mean, um, uh, Dan and Laurie and, uh, are going along with it. And only you know Rorschach is, is the one who's not going to go along with this. He's not going to give up. Somebody's committed a crime and he's going to try to get them punished, even if it kills him. Yeah. And that, that does, you know, that affects all of our characters, right? And I think it's interesting that we see uh, the Night Owl and, and, and Silk Spectre um, romantically linked at the end, whether or not that's believable. Um, they, they, and they find happiness in each other in sort of small scale and they're able to sort of like let go of the idea of saving the world, let go of the idea of saving everyone. And instead they're going to do sort of, they, 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 it seems to me like they've decided they're going to do their small scale hero acts of heroism. And they'll be content doing that, um, in knowledge of like what their power, what their power is and what they can do and what they can't do. And, um, find, they actually find happiness in each other. It seems like by the end and, and are possibly planning to have children and, and have taken on new aliases and all this stuff. Um, so it's interesting. You have these two characters finding, finding peace. And then you have, like you said, Warshak gets disintegrated for his inability to compromise. And then you have Dr. Manhattan who decides he's going to leave our galaxy for another one. That's like simpler and just, you know, leaves. And then you have Ozymandias left victorious, essentially unpunished for his crime. And, and, uh, we assume going on to be one of the most powerful figures in the world. So, so just to explain it for anyone who didn't read it, uh, Rorschach was going to expose all of the things that, that Ozymandias had done. And so in killing Rorschach, Dr. Manhattan stopped that. But before Ozym- or, uh, Rorschach had sent his journal into the news agency, who would potentially be leaking it later. Ultimately, Ozymandias winning is the most interesting of the, of the ways that this could have ended. Because everyone was expecting our heroes to save the day, stop this catastrophe, go back in time or something with Dr. Manhattan's, you know, infinite powers. But ultimately, this is, this is where they leave us. And it's sobering, right? It's, you're, you're having to, to just ingest this and think of what the world, although we, the, the world may come together now um, for, for a time, was it was it worth it? Is it worth losing lives? And yeah. I don't know. It's it's really interesting. And that's why about. having this conclude as a novel, I'm 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 kind of sad that they're trying to bring the Watchmen into the DC universe. And there's, you know, comics have been coming out last year and the year before with bringing uh, Doctor Manhattan and the other folks into the DC universe. Uh, not necessary. Um, <laughs> Did you have you read any of the Doomsday Clock stuff by chance? 
I read one issue and I'm like, okay, I get it. Yeah. But it was early days when they discovered, I think Batman gets the button. The button in his cave. To, in his yeah. cave, yeah. So uh, that's kind of where I was at as well. I was, I, and I, in, a, in a weird way, I kind of was, was interested in it and then I never ended up reading the run. Um, so I don't really, I'd like to know what people think of it. Well, I, and one thing I like about it ending the way it does uh, and, and it being the end of the story is that, is that, yeah, he won and let's, you know, and you can think about what kind of world it would lead to. The classic problem of comics is the status quo. Um, the things appear to change, but can't actually change. So, uh, so Reed Richards and Tony Stark can't actually fix global warming. They Thor can't go to drought areas and cause all the crops to grow and end hunger because um, it it de it detaches it from the real world. So in some ways, Spider-Man is the easiest level of superhero to write about because you can imagine a guy only, you know, fixing small problems more than you imagine these gods and incredible intellects somehow not being able to fix the most important problems in the world and always fighting Dr. Doom and never curing hunger. So it's, it's, um, it gets around that problem. There was a great, um, uh, mini series, uh, back in the eighties too, called, uh, Squadron Supreme. And it was a parallel universe where basically the justice league equivalents, uh, basically say, Nope, we're going to end nuclear war. We're going to take over the government and only the Batman kind of character, the Nightwing character, is is, is operating against them, and because um, he wanted to um, go into the idea of well, what happens if you if the superheroes actually did everything that superheroes could do? Like, mm -hmm. what would the government look like? What would uh, what would the state of the world be like? And would it lead necessarily to autocracy, or could it be this utopia that Vite is imagining? Wow. Well, I think that's a good place to lead us into our final topic I want to touch on, and that's sort of the legacy of this story going forward. We see the new adaptations happening. Um, I don't know if I talked about this earlier in the episode, but there is sort of a legal thing going on, too, where uh, these characters are owned by DC, um, and, and Alan Moore doesn't really want all of these adaptations being made, yet they, they own them, so they're able to do that. Um, and that's because of the way I, I assume the contracts were signed back in the 80s. He, there, there was from what I was reading, it was like if it wasn't in print for a year, the characters would revert to him. But because it was so successful that they've kept it in print forever so that it never will actually revert um, to him and, and Dave Givens. And that seems sort of tragic to me in a way. But also we're getting the you know, we got the film we're going to be covering next week and then we're getting the new HBO series coming out. Um, that might not be happening if that hadn't occurred. So um, I think artistically, the the legacy is interesting in that way. But then also just like, why are we telling that story again now, I think is also interesting, right? Like, why are we bringing back Watchmen now where, where we are politically in America? Uh, it's a big topic, but I, I just want to get your guys' thoughts on that. Well, I think, I mean, one weird choice that Zack Snyder made in the movie was to not update it, to set it in the 80s, set the music, use only 80s music, um, and have it just be as pure an expression as he could get of the comic, even though there's some tragic missteps that I'd be happy to rant about. But let's skip that for now. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm more interested in the HBO series to say, given that he's going to treat the Watchmen book like canon and we're 30 years on uh, and mm -hmm. we're in an alternate America that leads directly from the Watchmen book, uh, what is the legacy of Rorschach? What is the legacy of Adrian Veidt? Um, what's been going on? 
and let's and I think it's the perfect moment to deal with um, these kind of you know issues of of what's been going on with the ultra right wing, um, uh, what's been going on with uh, this feeling of vigilantism, and the fact that in the comic there's explicit references to the KKK, and that's coming out in the in the in the series too, in the HBO series yeah. and just the trailers I've seen where we're going to wrestle with this issue. like, what does it mean to go masked? What are you doing? How is it a violation of democratic norms? The great tradition of American film is that vigilantism is the one way to solve the problems. You know, you've got, right. you've got, uh, uh, that happens all throughout our movies and it's true in comics as well. So, uh, I'm really interested. I think it's the perfect time to bring back a series that deals with after effects of of Watchmen. I hope it's good. I really would love it to be good. Yeah. So I, I guess I guess I'll stop there. I'm hoping it's good, and I think it's still I think it's still relevant. Yeah. Just to echo basically what you guys are saying, I think that in the hands of leftovers creator and kind of overseer of that, which I was a huge fan of, Damon Lindelof. I think that. I'm excited for it, right? And I and I I'm of the opinion that like if something else comes out that continues the story, it's not going to tarnish the original for me. So nothing's going to change the legacy of this of this novel for me and it, it'll stand on its own. Right. And if this happens to, you know, um, you know, extend my enjoyment of Watchmen, that's great. If not, yeah. um, I'm glad that they took this attempt. I think it's interesting and I, I think it's also smart to 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 get away from the source material, telling a different story. Uh, like you said, updating it for the for the modern era, while also I've seen some stuff in the trailers that very clearly is going to stay more true to the to this comic than than even the Zack Snyder adaptation did. Yeah, and as yeah. far as the work for hire agreement, I mean that's true still today. These these agreements, you don't own the intellectual property. It's very hard to get a contract where you do, um, and uh, but you're right, the, and it's like the expiration of copyright. On one hand, it's very good that at a certain point, I want artists to be paid. I'm a guy who wants to be paid for my work. Um, yeah. But I also do believe that um, art leads to art. And so uh, that's why I'm in, you know, I'm in favor of the copyright expiring on things. So we can use Mozart, so we can use uh, previous works of art to make new art and do new variations of it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, in some ways we're lucky and uh, Alan Moore is mad at us. Uh, but I'm, I, I it still, it still makes me want to look forward to stuff and see what they, what they do with it. So this has been a great conversation. I, I've really enjoyed this. I think you were the perfect person to have on to help lead us through Watchmen and talk about all of that. I do want to get your brief thoughts. Um, since we're going to be going into the movie next week and we'll be doing a deep dive, but you tragically won't be able to join us. You're going to viable paradise to teach other writers who are replacing me in Bible <laughs> paradise. Um, and, and, uh, so we're going to be doing it alone, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts, uh, a little bit at least on the Zack Snyder adaptation, maybe things for us to look for. I'm, I'm already getting some ideas of some things you, you maybe would like for us to touch on. Okay. Uh, real, there's just real quickly, uh, Zack yeah. Snyder's approach to action. I think one of the points of Watchmen is that most of these people are just normal people. Um, trying to be superheroes. And uh, in Zack Snyder's movie, everybody's a ninja. Um, mm. every, so that uh, annoyed the hell out of me. Um, he, There's some things that are shot for shot uh, for, out of the comic that are great. And I think it's a really tough thing to take a novel as 
uh, a work as complicated as The Watchmen and make it into a movie. So there are some beautiful things there. The opening sequence, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, uh, I hope you will enjoy it. Um, yeah. It's Some of it is just drop-dead beautiful. Uh, some of it just seems to be a mistake. And I almost wish he hadn't said it in the 80s and tried to figure out um, a, a different way to do the film. But that was an artistic right. choice. And so, I mean, Zack Snyder has taken a lot of grief for what has happened to Justice League. Um, but right. I think uh, at least he makes choices. And so then we get to argue about them. Yeah, that's something to look forward to. Um, our listeners, if they wanted to find you online, follow you on Twitter, find your books, uh, where can they go? Where can they find you? Uh, my website is DarylGregory.com. I, I update it religiously once every two years. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I'm on Twitter at Daryl Writer Guy. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty accessible. So always happy to talk. And uh, the books are found wherever wherever fine fiction materials are sold. <laughs> All over the place. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm really ho- uh, hoping for the Spoon Bitters adaptation. You know, fingers crossed that everything goes forward smoothly and we get to see it. Well, I hope you get to uh, tear it apart in some future episode. <laughs> well, well, we'll give it the treatment for sure. You know what that looks like, we'll see. Um, but but this has been super fun. I'm so glad that we, I was able to have you on, Daryl. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Luke, James, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. All right, and we wanted to thank one of our new patrons, Paula. Uh, is actually an international patron. So we wanted to thank you from overseas for supporting the podcast. We really appreciate it. And if you wanted to become a patron as well, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Yeah, and you can see all the bonus uh, episodes we have there. We have these new reading prompts we're doing every now and then to let people know in advance uh, what is coming. So you can look at all the different tiers, the different things that we offer. Definitely check that out. If you don't have any money, but you still want to help us out, we absolutely would love for you to leave a rating and review uh, wherever you found this podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you can do that. Um, that helps get the word out and gets people uh, you know, noticing our podcast, which is, which is a huge help. Um, and then beyond that, tell a friend. If you know somebody who likes Watchmen in particular and you like this episode, share it with them. Let them know about it. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're at Ink to Film on all three. And join our Council of Inklings because we post polls in there. We post upcoming projects stuff. We post uh, any sort of adaptation news that we see going on preemptively. Get some get some comments and stuff going about that. It's really fun in there. So definitely check that out. Yeah. And we wanted to thank Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. And a huge thanks to Daryl for coming on. It was it was a ton of fun. And you brought some great insight to all this comic book stuff. It was great to have someone uh, who's got su- such a history with the with the material to help us kind of talk about it. And yeah, Daryl Gregory is a great writer. Definitely check out his work. If you liked hearing him on this episode, maybe pick up Spoonbender so that you're ready for when that uh, when that mo- when that show is coming out, hopefully knock on wood. Um, it was great having Daryl on, uh, you know, so big shout out to him. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week for the movie. So until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.